Good morning, everyone. You know, we often say that the heart of Christianity is about loving and trusting Jesus, but what does that look like day to day in real life? That's the question that we're going to be considering over the next few weeks. We will be homing in on the letter of James in the New Testament, and the title of our series is Faith Works. Now, James's letter, as we'll go through it, you'll see it's a very practical, a very straightforward, straight-talking letter. Uh, it opens in the customary way of letters at the time, with the writer introducing himself. Uh, the very opening verse reads, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. I don't know about you, but if I was closely related to a very famous person, uh, I might be inclined to name drop. Well, James here, who was writing this letter, is the half-brother of Jesus, same mum. And not to be confused with James, the son of Zebedee, who was one of the 12 original disciples. Now, according to the Gospel of Mark, Jesus, in fact, had four younger brothers, as well as a number of sisters. Theirs was a devout Jewish family. And it seems that when their elder brother began to go around acting and speaking like God, James and the others were concerned, to put it mildly. At one point, they turn up and try to seize Jesus because they're not happy about what he is doing. So James was not convinced that Jesus was who he claimed to be, and yet here he is writing this letter, referring to him as the Lord Jesus Christ, the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. What was it that changed his mind? Well, I would imagine that seeing his brother raised from the dead would have done that for him. So whatever he thought beforehand, once he encountered the risen Christ, that changed everything. And you know what? The same is true for each of us as well. It's when we are convinced in our hearts that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, that we step onto the path of life. So although James wasn't one of the original 12 disciples, it seems that fairly on, he became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. But here he is identifying himself in this letter, not as the brother of Jesus, nor as the guy who calls the shots in the church, but as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what? That's what matters. We're all serving something or someone, and there is no greater thing in life than to serve Jesus, to be his hands, his feet, his voice in whatever situation we find ourselves in. Now, out of all the, <clears throat> all the letters in the New Testament, this one was generally held to be the earliest. It was written maybe a decade or so after Jesus was raised and ascended to heaven. And soon after the events that we read about in Acts chapter 7, we read then that up until at that point, the church had been growing rapidly in Jerusalem. Thousands of people were being saved and added to their number. But then persecution breaks out. Stephen is stoned to death. Many of the believers are scattered to the surrounding regions. But as they go, they are proclaiming the good news about Jesus and planting churches in the cities and towns wherever they settle. These are the people that James has in view when he writes. He calls them the 12 tribes 
which is a way of describing the people of God. Historically, that meant the nation of Israel, but now it consists, of course, of all those who are in Christ from every nation, tribe, and tongue. So this is God's word to the dispersed church of Jesus Christ throughout the world, which includes, of course, us. It's worth saying that over the years, not everybody has been a, a fan of this letter. Some think it appears to be promoting the idea that we are saved by what we do rather than being saved by grace through faith in Jesus. But I think that's a misunderstanding. James is not saved, is not saying that we are saved and put right with God because we do certain things. He's saying that we do these things because we are saved by grace. In other words, faith isn't passive. It's not just about agreeing in our minds with certain truths about God. Faith changes radically how we think, how we act. Faith works. That's what James is all about. And that's this, the title of this series that we're, that we're starting this morning. And over the next few weeks, we'll see, for example, how faith in Jesus changes, how we deal with temptation, how we treat other people, how we use our tongue, how we handle disagreements, how we think about money and wealth, and of course, how we pray. But this morning is about how we handle difficulties. One thing we can all agree on is that sometimes life is hard. Maybe right now that's where you're living. And the question is, how does faith work in that situation? So my title this morning is Faith That Gets You Through What You're Going Through. So let's jump right in. After his very brief greeting, James gets straight to the point. Verse 2, consider it pure joy, <clears throat> my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. Notice that, that James says, when, when you face trials. I'd have much preferred it if he'd said, if. That would have left some wiggle room. When means that trials are inevitable. They're part of life and they come in many different shapes and forms. There are trials that last five minutes and trials that go on for years. There are trials that make us roll our eyes and trials that make us weep. Trials that step on our toes and trials that kick our feet out from under us. This current situation that we're going through with the pandemic involves trials of many kinds. The circumstances are impacting us all, but, but in, in very different ways. And you know, there's, there's still quite a way to go before we're out the other side of it. Now in our passage this morning, we're gonna be seeing four practical ways in which faith works to get you through what you're going through. I'm going to just give you them right up front. They are firstly, that faith trusts that there's an upside. Secondly, faith relies on God's wisdom. Thirdly, faith changes how you see yourself and your circumstances. And fourthly, ultimately, faith turns trials into triumphs. Let's begin with that first one. Faith trusts that there's an upside, even when you can't see one. You know, when it comes to the, this present lockdown, quite a number of people are seeing an upside. We've heard a little bit about that already this morning. 
People are observing that it's bringing communities together. Some are enjoying time to do things that get squeezed out normally. We've seen the story on the news this week of 99-year-old Captain Tom raising over 60 million pounds for the NHS just by walking around his garden, an amazing thing to do. While some businesses face ruin, others are booming. Uh, I read this week that over the last few weeks, Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, has added $24 billion to his personal wealth. That's on top of however many gazillion dollars he already has. That's quite an upside. So for, for many people, there are benefits that they can see, but what if you're facing a situation where you just cannot see any upside? When it feels like you're in a dark tunnel and there's no glimmer of light at the end of it, what are we to make of what James says in that situation? Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. Some of you might remember the tennis star John McEnroe famously questioning an umpire's line call at Wimbledon many years ago by exclaiming loudly, you cannot be serious. I imagine most of us react the same way when we read this line in James. What kind of masochist would find joy in having a really difficult time? If you're thinking, well, that's just not natural, you're absolutely right. It isn't natural. That's the point. It's faith working in us. You see, faith gives us a, a different lens to look through. It's not about denying or denying our feelings or putting on a happy face. We don't give thanks for the problem, but by faith, we give thanks to God in the problem. Jenny's talked about that already this morning. How on earth, though, can we do that? I, I think it's all down to this word, consider, that James uses. Consider it joy. This word conveys the idea of counting or reckoning on something. For example, the Apostle Paul tells us to count ourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. He says that things he once counted gain, he now considers loss. And in the same way when it comes to trials, faith doesn't deny the loss or the difficulty or the pain, but in Christ, it reckons that there's another side to the balance sheet, that something is gained. And, and James goes on to tell us what it is that is gained. He says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Is that it? I, I gain perseverance, I become more resilient. What if I'd rather settle for a nice, comfortable life and not worry about perseverance? I, you know, you and I might be happy with that, but you see, God wants us to have life and have it to the full. And it seems that perseverance is a vital ingredient of that life. So James goes on to say this, that perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. In other words, it's about growing up. It's about experiencing wholeness. It's about life to the full. 
Now, when James talks here about the testing of our faith, it's not like an examination. It's not about passing or failing. It's rather that faith is like a muscle that needs to be put under pressure in order to be strengthened or like a precious metal in the refining process, impurities come up to the surface. Now, when you're under pressure, I don't know about you, but I know what happens is what's in me comes out of me. When you're under pressure, what's in you comes out of you. So if you're filled with bitterness, that'll come out. If you've got issues with anger, that'll come out. Guilt, shame, insecurity, whatever's in you is going to come out when you're under pressure. And then we see it for what it is. And God graciously begins to help us to deal with it. So the purpose of testing isn't to condemn you, but to strengthen you. And that's not to say that God is, is the one who has caused this pandemic, but it's to say that he can use it to help you to grow and to become whole and to become complete. But if that's going to happen, then we need something else. We need wisdom. And that's the second way that faith works. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given them. And I think a lot of us would recognize that what drives us to pray like nothing else is when we are in a painful or difficult situation and we don't know what to do. And when a trial hits, it's a bit like being at sea in a storm, you're thrown off balance, you're confused, your emotions are all over the place. You desperately need to find your bearings. Lord, what's happening here? What do I make of this? How do I respond? And the good news is that when we ask God for wisdom, he's ready to give it. He's not like, well, you got yourself into this problem. You can get yourself out of it. That's not what our Heavenly Father is like. He's not a fault finder. He's big hearted. He's generous. And God doesn't have favorites. He, he delights to give to all. So what James says next comes as a bit of a shock. In verses 6 to 7, he says, But when he asks for wisdom, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. Oh gosh, does that mean that if you've got questions or you wrestle with some part of the Bible or you struggle to understand God's ways, then you're on your own? Fortunately, it's not as bad as it sounds. The kind of doubt that James is talking about has to do with split loyalties. It's about hedging your bets, trying to have the best of both worlds. You, you listen to what God has to say, but if you like someone else's advice better, then you'll go with that. James says, no, that makes you unstable. You're being pulled in two different directions. You'll be blown back and forward. That kind of faith just doesn't work. Faith that works is a faith that relies on God's wisdom, even when it seems to cut across what appears to be right in the world's eyes. And you know, one way that God's wisdom is very different to the world's wisdom concerns how we see ourselves. That's the, the third way 
that we find faith working. Verses 9 and 10 say, says this, the brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wild flower. What James is recognizing here is that our circumstances, and in particular our economic circumstances, will have a direct bearing on how we are impacted by trials. It's always the poor and the poorest who are worst affected. That's what's coming to light in the present crisis. Now, it's not that being poor has any intrinsic moral value, and nor is being rich a sin in itself. But the point is that our circumstances tend to influence how we see ourselves. It's more likely that a poor person will see themselves as a failure, powerless, unimportant, overlooked, whereas a rich person is more likely to feel self-important, self-reliant, proud of what they've achieved. With wealth comes influence. You get used to having your voice heard. There's an expectation that the world will bend itself to what you want. Now, actually, James gives the same advice to both groups, and it's don't let how you see yourself be determined by your life circumstances. Let it be shaped rather by the gospel, by the good news of Jesus. We see an echo here of the teaching of Jesus himself, that the last will be first and the first will be last. The gospel of the kingdom turns the wisdom of the world completely upside down. The message of the gospel to the poor, to those that the world sees as the least and the last, is that in Christ you have an exalted position. To God, you are not worthless, you are priceless. That Christ died for you and all the riches of his grace are yours. Rejoice in that. And to the wealthy, and you know what, although we don't think of ourselves this way in world terms, that would include many of us. The message is, don't take pride in your wealth or your achievements, because apart from grace, you have nothing. You are nothing. What you need to glory in above all else is Jesus, all that he has done for you and the position that you're in with God because of him. And you know, here's the thing that we need to always keep in mind. Verse 11, but the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty fades. In the same way, the rich man will fade even while he goes about his business. You know, if there's one lesson we can all learn from this pandemic, it's that our circumstances can change very quickly. And if all our hopes are invested in this life, then it's very hard to bear anything that detracts from it or diminishes it or disrupts our plans. And what faith will do is lead us to shift our hope away from our present temporary fragile circumstances and towards the eternal certainties of the age to come. And that brings us to our final point, that faith that works is a faith that turns trials into triumphs. Verse 12 says, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. 
Let me just finish with a story about a man by the name of Henry Morrison. Henry was a, an American missionary who served in Africa with his wife for about 40 years before returning to the United States in the early part of last century. And as their ship sailed into New York, he wondered if anybody would be there to welcome them home. To his amazement and his, and, and his delight as they drew closer to the harbor, he could see crowds of people waving and cheering and a band playing. And, and he felt quite overwhelmed by it all until he discovered that unbeknown to the other passengers traveling on the same ship was President Teddy Roosevelt returning from a hunting trip. And by the time Henry and his wife disembarked, the band had packed up, the crowds had gone, and there wasn't a soul there to welcome them home. And that night, he was feeling totally dejected. He complained to his wife, Teddy Roosevelt goes on holiday for three weeks and comes home to a hero's welcome. I go through all kinds of trials and difficulties, serving God in Africa for 40 years, and when I come home, no one cares. And his wife said, but Henry, you're not home yet. The crown that James has in mind here is the victor's wreath. It speaks of the joy, the glory that awaits us when at last we come home. Not because we're heroes, but because we continued to put our trust in the one who is our hero. The one who suffered so that God could end our suffering without ending us. The one who came that we might have life and have it to the full. And this is what all his dealings with us are designed to bring us to. Fullness of life and joy in his presence forevermore. Let's take a moment to pray. Father, we recognize that while we are going through this present situation together, it's affecting us all in very different ways. Thank you that you promised to give each of us the wisdom, the perspective that we need in order to find our bearings. And Lord, I, I just pray especially for those who are really struggling this morning, that your word will be a lamp to their feet and a light to their path. Thank you too, Father, that, that while the immediate future is very uncertain, we know how the story ends. Thank you that we have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and certain while the billows roll, fastened to the rock that cannot move. We are grounded firm and deep in the love of Christ, our Saviour, our Lord. Thank you. Amen.